Hello, and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, you never know what you can find in a cabbage. I was very curious to know what you were going to come up with for this intro line you like to do nowadays, because I am struggling for quotes for this one. <laughs> I've got a couple, but um, the cabbage line definitely jumped out to me, and I was like underlining that one going, ding, 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 there's my intro. Hey, I, I, uh, I love a bit of cabbage, and I love a cheesy line, so well done. You nailed that, sir. But uh, before we get to the film this week, we have to induct our latest Spy Hards Die Hard. Now, if you don't know how to become a Spy Hards Die Hard, you never heard of it, let Cam illuminate. Yes, you can become a Spy Hards Die Hard by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and writing us a review that we can then read on the show and give you your top secret spy codename. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just a little way to, to get to interact with the show. You write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it out, we'll practically read out anything, as long as it's uh, PG, of course. But this week, our latest Spy Hard, Die Hard, inductee extraordinaire is uh, Harry Locke, who writes us on the UK Apple Podcast. I spy a great show. Five stars. Oh. Great opener, great opener. This show is an absolute pleasure to listen to. Entertaining from start with a pair of hosts that have genuine chemistry. Now, Cam, I've always had chemistry with you. It's, uh... I mean, frankly, this podcast holds us back. Mm, very true. Uh, if, if we were together, I mean, could you imagine the sparks that would fly if we were in the same room? <laughs> they would be combustible. The whole place would ignite. It would. It would. I don't think the podcast world could survive. Move over... Uh, Joe Rogan, move over, uh, you know, how this was made. It, it would be Cam Scott. It would be like the end of the movie Carrie. <laughs> I haven't seen that, so I'm going to assume uh, that's a big thing and everyone else is shaking their heads I haven't seen Carrie. Fair enough, fair enough. Maybe maybe we can somehow work that into a, uh, a uh, Halloween Agents in the Field or something like that one day. But speaking of owing it, we owe it to Harry to finish their review. They go on to say, there is not much more that I can say that others haven't already, but if you love obscure spy films, then you owe it to yourself to try this fantastic show. And boy, Harry, have we got the film for you this week. That's right, we do. And that means you get your codename, and it's inspired by this week's film, of which its title does not exactly lend itself to cool code names. I think we might have to go with, oh, this is tough, Agent of Belgium? Is that the code name? That's the lamest thing I've ever heard. Uh, we could go based on the biography of the author of the book that inspired this. We could go with a spy codename from that book, and that was number 63. Oh, I like that. Everyone loves a spy number. 63? Yeah, this one's a little tougher to draw. There's no, like, really cool codenames being bandied about in the movie or, like, we had Chimera when we did Mission Impossible 2 because, you know, you've got your evil plot and it's tied to the Chimera virus. That's mm -hmm. a cool nickname. Mm -hmm. This movie doesn't really have that. And so I think uh, number 63 is a pretty damn good one. Number 63 is great. Harry, congratulations. You are now Agent 63. That's a pretty cool spy name. I agree. So there you go. That was the latest Spy Hards, Die Hards. But let's get to the review. 
All right, Cam, the time is here. We did tease at the beginning. This one's a bit of an unknown one, a bit of a Spy Hards special. That's very accurate, yes. Are we calling it that from now on, a Spy Hards special? Well, it has a lot of connections to another movie we covered on this podcast. So, I don't know. It's actually continuing down a trajectory we started, I think, last year. Oh, well, now I need to hear more. Let's get to it. Cam, what are we talking about? We are talking about 1933's I Was a Spy, starring Madeline Carroll. I have a lot to say about this film, which we'll get into. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's coming, don't you worry. But if you, by any chance, have uh, never seen I Was a Spy, and uh, that may be quite a few of you listening, here is your synopsis. I Was a Spy. To answer the lure of her lips was fatal. <laughs> That's not accurate at all to this movie. She is not a seductress character or anything like that. No, they're really sort of playing it like the Matahari. Uh-huh. Playing it that way, but she really isn't that. She is the sort of meek, meld into the background type spy. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about Matahari going forward a bit too. Okay, fine. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read that line again because it's almost as good as the uh, the the Mystery Man of the Balkans. <laughs> Nothing's better than that. <laughs> it doesn't get much better. To answer the lure of her lips was fatal. During World War I, a young nurse in a hospital in German-occupied Belgium is secretly feeding military information to the British. Complicating matters is the guilt she feels when she has to treat the German casualties inflicted as a result of the information she passed on and the fact that the local German commandant is falling in love with her. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that a lot of time when we cover movies from the 30s or 40s, the synopsis is like one sentence on mm. Letterboxd, and this one was actually more detailed, which is interesting. Yeah, I did appreciate that, although I do, uh, I, there is a uh, minor uh, sort of failure in this synopsis. Okay, it, not mentioning Stephen, perhaps, or something else? Uh, I, I couldn't care less about Stephen, which we'll get to. Okay. Sorry, Herbert Marshall, but the first line says, During World War I, a young nurse in a hospital. Now, oh, I'm not entirely sure she's a qualified nurse. No, she's recruited by the Germans to be a nurse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe at that point you were just sort of given the title of a nurse. You were just and then taught on the job. I don't know. But it's very weird at the start of the film where basically she happens to be walking past someone who's wounded. And then the doctor goes, you're a nurse now. I mean, thank God no one ever did that to me because I would have lost a lot of patience. I mean, I've been sick with you on holiday and you've actually been sick when I've been on holiday with you. And I think you would make a better... Uh, I think you have a better bedside manner than I would, actually. That is, I don't think, true. Uh, well, okay, I remember when I was in high school. I okay. had to take like um, aptitude tests for jobs. Okay. And nurse came up very high on mine and i was like that is insane i have a like deathly fear of sick people i don't want them anywhere near me i am not the person you should ever put into a hospital ward ever because all i want to do is run for the exits so i did not take that aptitude test particularly seriously um i don't remember what else was on the list i just remember being so horrified at that one that i maybe like threw the paper up in the air and ran out of the room i don't know i remember someone i know though got <laughs> I think his was a little more detailed. I'm sure it named some jobs up front, but it said mm -hmm. one of the things he would specialize in was sorting tiles by color and size. <laughs> Is that a paying job? I hope so. I could do that. Let's do it. Let's quit yeah. this uh, podcasting business and sort some tiles. If it pays well, I'm willing to sort tiles by color and size. 
uh, yeah, I suppose uh, maybe one of the questions is, are you colorblind? And he was like, no. And they're like, ah, yeah. tile sorting by color. So, uh, Jeff, if you're out there listening, um, I know you've done much better. <laughs> much better. Hey, significantly don't, better. <laughs> don't, don't talk down to the tile sources of the no, world. No, no. I consider myself an honorary tile sorter. I am one step away from being right there with them. Um, so, no, I mean more knowing where he's gone in life. He's done very, very well for himself. Well, I, I also wonder then, um, because, you know, there's, there's that TV show, The Sandbaggers, which is about spies, and that sort of term does come up from, from time to time. Maybe Spy Hards listeners aren't Spy Hards, they're, uh, or they're uh, tile sorters. Maybe, maybe. And count me one as well. Yeah, we're all tile sorters here, folks. That's right. That's By right. color and size. <laughs> uh, but let's, uh, let's get to this uh, spy. Now, I assume you've never seen this film. We do have some connections with some of the cast, luckily, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I- I'd never seen this one either. So I am uh, quite curious, Cam. How can a chemist win the war? Oh, well, um, okay, so I said there was a spy movie connection. What would happen if I were to tell you that this movie has close connections to Lancer Spy? <sighs> very, very, very close connections. Uh, I would understand that, given Lancer Spy. Okay, so when we talked about Lancer Spy, and I'll give people a little bit of uh, background on this one. Sometimes I can kind of go to the familiar, like, oh, you know, Purpose and Wade are back to write the latest Bond film, just as the last few. I don't need to say much more than that. This is a case where I think I need to give a little more backstory in terms of the author of the book. No, no sell it. Just go straight for the info on Lancer <laughs> Spy. Don't give any... You have to go and listen to that episode to get your backstory. Well, okay. I mean, as you all know, listening, Martha Knockhart, really popular author of the time, obviously, right? You all know that. So I'm just not going to go into anything to do with her backstory. <laughs> you know all about Martha uh, Knockhart. Uh, no. Uh, so when we talked about Lancer Spy, it was based on a book by Martha Lockhart McKenna. That was her married name later. But um, she was a you know popular author of spy fiction. She also wrote an autobiography about herself called I Was a Spy that was published in 1932. And Marta was a Belgian spy for the UK and its allies during World War I. Her codename was Laura, and she used her nurse job as a cover to get close to German military personnel. Sound familiar? Stop me if you've heard this one before. Yeah. She mostly worked with two other female Belgian spies, an elderly vegetable seller named Canteen Ma. Do you remember Canteen Ma? We talked about her in, uh, in um, Lancer Spy. I think we dubbed the nickname Camteen. Ma at a certain point i i don't remember the canteen maybe you're just doing that in your own head although canteen Maw does sound like a star wars character it does and we did see canteen Maw in this film i thought you were gonna say in star wars and i was like huh what yeah what a callback that was b arthur in the star wars holiday special <laughs> oh right okay yep uh what what was uh who was canteen Maw in this film that was the cabbage selling woman the woman who was hiding codes in the cabbage huh okay Wow, this is actually all connecting. All right. Yeah, and the other agent was number 63, uh, which we gave that nickname out earlier. That was the other spy she worked with. And um, she had a German lodger, which was sort of her overseer, named Otto, who she had killed after he attempted to get her to spy on the British. And she was like basically forced into a double agent role mm. and was like, you know what? This is for the birds. See you later, Otto. <laughs> and so Otto uh, met an untimely demise. Um, she also 
took part in some other missions. She destroyed a telephone line that a, that a local priest was using to spy for the Germans. She attempted to obtain details about a visit from the Kaiser in a potential assassination attempt. Um, and she was ultimately arrested after um, attempting to bomb an ammo dump. And she left a watch behind that led to her discovery. So this film is kind of an amalgamation of a few of her stories turned into one. This is based on her autobiography, and there are elements that are obviously heavily fictionalized, but in a general sense, this movie is her story, and this is the woman who would go on to write uh, Lancer Spy. And she was, as in this movie, you know, arrested, put on trial, and she was not given a death sentence because she'd gotten an iron cross mm -hmm. for her um, medical efforts. And so that got her life imprisonment. And she also just had a very, very, very good relationship with all of her patients. And so they all vouched for her. Mm -hmm. It was not a grand sacrifice, kind of romantic gesture in a courtroom kind of thing. It was honestly having a community around her that very much supported her, even though she was a spy. And so that got her life imprisonment. She got basically two years in prison and then was released in 1918 when, when World War One ended. And after the war became a novelist, she married a guy named um, John Jock McKenna, and there's a lot of talk online. I saw a lot of writing about her that um, her books were ghostwritten by him, uh, like including the autobiography and then several of the novels later, including Lancer Spy, I would assume. Mm -hmm. um, it's never been, I think, 100% confirmed, but when they did divorce later in life, the books stopped. So who knows, right? Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, if that was the case, they were obviously very successful at doing it if she had several books. Well, and also, like, it may be a case of, like, she has all of these stories and inside information, and he mm -hmm. just has the ability to kind of put them together into a story. So it was a collaboration, if nothing else. And she has a sort of cachet of, of her name after the first few books, I imagine, as well. You're sort of selling the author more than the story half the time. Exactly, yeah. So, like, her story, I think when we talked about Lancer Spy, I'm, like, trying to scour my dusty memory banks it's it's like it was yesterday cam I, I i i can't ever forget that guy's thumb head i i feel like though when we were talking about that movie and i read about the author on air that uh i was like why don't we watch that movie i'll watch that movie about this woman well here we are <laughs> <laughs> six months later accidentally here we are and hired to turn this uh story into a screenplay was wp lipscomb who has a dialogue and scenario credit on the movie. Credits were a little different back then, the way they credited writers. And um, he was a British playwright and screenwriter. And he started writing films in the tail end of the 20s, starting with the musical comedy Splinters. And his this was his follow-up to the Basil Rathbone film Loyalties. Um, some of his other notable credits, a couple years after this movie, he did an adaptation of Les Miserables and also A Tale of Two Cities, both coming out in 1935. He won an Oscar for adapting the 1938 Best Picture nominee Pygmalion. Uh, he took the play and turned it into a film. Very good film, actually. And he also, in one of his final credits, co-wrote the 1958 Richard Attenborough World War II movie, Dunkirk. Which, is that the basis for the... I mean, obviously, it's, it's based on the real story, but like, did, did Sam Mendes use the story from that? Or like augment bits of it or something? Was there any callbacks in the Mendes version? I think you're blending uh, 1917 and Dunkirk. Yes, um, I am. That was a Christopher <laughs> Nolan film. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. I, no, I, I don't got think it. So. Don't write in, folks. <laughs> I figured it out. 
he's probably seen uh, the 1958 film, but I don't know that it was a strong uh, influence. I think it's available on maybe even Tubi, so I might watch it at some point because I do like watching old war movies. You do. Uh, but I haven't seen it at this point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so there was also a credit for additional dialogue um, from Ian Hay, who was an English playwright and screenwriter as well, uh, and started out with a 1919 play called Getting Together, he wrote, that was adapted into the movie The Common Cause and went on to do some other film work. So I Was a Spy, obviously he gave additional dialogue. He also wrote dialogue for The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, and Sabotage. Which all followed this, right? Yeah, so he went on a bit of a Hitchcock streak after this movie. One thing I think it might be important just to contextualize for people like me who don't know cinema history quite as well is this is 1933 when this film comes out, the book is 32. Where is film at this point? Because we have yeah, very recently gone to talkies, right? 1928 is when the talkies start, yeah. Okay, so this is kind of a new thing still, especially because this is, a, I think, a British production. It is, and I don't know if you noticed, but some of the dialogue was a little muffled and things like that at parts of the movie. You could tell that they were still perfecting how to actually capture voices on sets because there was a couple points there was a couple points where i was straining it was like the um, boom mic wasn't in place or whoever they were recording it but yeah there was i think didn't those days they used to like disguise microphones on the scenery behind props a lot of the time sometimes they would also put them in like flower pots and things like that and have people standing near them right yeah yeah but there were definitely towards the beginning as well i noticed it more than the end but yeah there was definite points where i had no idea what people were saying yeah, and I don't know if like you were to look at the American film industry at that point if they were a little bit ahead. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to read a book about that sort of thing. But um, yeah, like it, the early 30s can sometimes be a, sh- a bit shaky when you get to sound. Although I don't really have any issues when you get to the mid 30s. Like once Hitchcock's doing like 39 steps and stuff, I'm not struggling. No, 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 no. But it's interesting. It's something to bear in mind if you are like continuing on this journey with us and watching all the films along the way maybe that's just something to keep in mind whilst you're watching this film is this is it's like they've just discovered you know color or they've just discovered like the moving picture this is a whole revolution from silent films this is notably though the year of king kong so there are big technical advancements going on because that movie i mean in its day would have been like star wars in 77 just people would have been absolutely astonished at what they were seeing sure okay yeah uh, and then the script for this movie was approved by Marta Knockhart McKenna. Hmm. She uh, very much signed off on this adaptation. So it was not a case of taking the author's book and just running wild without her having any input. She was actually, I think, quite happy with what they came up with. I think you you definitely want, especially if someone's still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine there's... I, it's always weird to do a biopic on someone that's still alive, I always find. Like, I always find the Elton John Rocket Man bit weird despite being an elton john fan and i think the film's actually very good too but doing a biopic about someone that's still kicking uh always feels a bit odd like it's like you need to sort of like tread on eggshells you can't tell the full story because you don't want to offend them yeah and it's also more of a common thing now where the families are very involved especially with musicians Mm. where it's like oh you want the rights to the music well we got we get approval then over what story is being told in the movie which often leads to very like sanitized kind of edges filed down biopics you know look at um bohemian rhapsody for example Mm -hmm. and there's like the michael jackson one in production now with i think like his nephew or great nephew or something like that and like 
I have to imagine the whole Jackson family has got their hands all over that. And I don't think they'll be dealing with half the things that you'd want them to. No. So it is kind of like a uh, weird situation where you need that music because that's what draws the audience in. Sure. But at the same time, you're probably delivering a inferior film. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. But if she seemed happy with it, not caught, I should say, then cool. Yep. And the movie was directed by Victor Seville, who was a Birmingham-born World War I veteran who was actually wounded at the Battle of Luce in 1915 and discharged, and then went to work at a film distribution office, and then began to work in features and newsreels at the Path A organization in London, mm-hmm. and then got into writing and directing in the late 20s, uh, starting with a 1928 drama called A Woman in the Night, which was a drama about a Russian ballerina. And then this was his follow-up to the 1933 musical The Good Companions. And he was like a very busy, versatile, and commercially successful studio director. Not someone with like a string of like uh, all-time classics to his name, but someone that was very in demand and knew how to make accessible mainstream entertainment that people enjoyed. Um, He also directed later after this movie, the 1949 spy film Conspirator with Elizabeth Taylor which you and I were going to tackle on the show some years ago, maybe like two years ago, but we just couldn't find a streaming version for you. And that would mean, of course, the listeners out there wouldn't be able to watch the movie either. Mm. I have a VHS of it sitting on my shelf, though, for the day we actually tackle Conspirator. A VHS or a DVD? Or a DVD, yeah. Is it a Betamax? It, it is not, no. no. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. If it, if it was a Betamax, I could mail it to you to watch. Oh, <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. He also wrote the 1951 Calling Bulldog Drummond film. So oh. someone that did a lot of kind of, uh, yeah, studio work. Steady hand. Um, definitely, definitely. And just a couple notes about the two leads. Madeline Carroll makes 39 steps two years later. This movie was kind of like her coming out party. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of off and running because she does 39 Steps. She does Hitchcock's Secret Agent. She does The Prisoner of Zenda, which was, was a big film in its time. And then she co-starred with Bob Hope in My Favorite Blonde towards the end of her career. She retired quite young. Well, one cool thing about Madeline Carroll, I learned today when I was looking her up because I thought she was fantastic in 39 Steps. So I was keen to see what she did in a different spy film. And it's nice to hear she does another one with Hitchcock as well, which I'm looking forward to getting to. But one thing I found really interesting about her career is that during World War II, she just hung it up for a while and became a nurse. Funnily enough, Great. she plays a nurse in this and she became a nurse and served uh, in, in France, uh, was given one of the highest medals a nurse can get, mm-hmm. uh, which again sort of has a funny parallel with this film. Uh, yeah, but you know, she just sort of thought, no, I want to help people and was very highly regarded among her peers. It's interesting, too, when you go back to that era, how many, like, Hollywood stars also went to went to war as well, and directors. And it's such, like, a scenario I don't know would be replicated nowadays. No. Well, interestingly, the, the conversation has come up very recently in this country about conscription because our, our numbers are so low when it comes to recruitment for the armed services. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not something that's going to happen, but it, yeah. it, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a weird world. Like, could you see the 18-year-old TikTokers being dragged out to the front lines like it just i don't i don't know how that would work anymore i think of like james stewart who was like in the air force in world war ii yeah and went on a lot of missions and i'm just like i can't imagine like because he was one of the biggest stars in the world in his in that period of time i'm just trying Mm -hmm. to imagine like the biggest star of today being like see you later 
I'm off to war. James Corden's like, well, okay, gonna hang up my boots on the Tonight Show or whatever it is and go and, I don't know, serve on a boat somewhere. That's your go-to is James Corden as one of the biggest stars of today? But that's because I didn't, I didn't mind if the boat got blown up. Oh, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I'm not sending okay. my beloved people out. I'm just sending James Corden out. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. He's he's our he's our representative. You can have him, <laughs> please. And yet you just keep watching his scene from Cats over and over again. I I, I do you know what I will say. He was good in Gavin and Stacey, which is a TV show I'm sure you've never seen. But other than that, I've never met a James Corden thing I liked. And the other actor I actually wanted to mention was Herbert Marshall who plays Steven in this film, uh, he actually lost his leg fighting in World War I. Wow. And had a wooden leg when he was shooting this movie, obviously, and uh, went on also a Hitchcock run. Did the movie Murder, Foreign Correspondent. Like, those are two really notable Hitchcock films. And then he also did a couple other classics like Trouble in Paradise, The Little Foxes, and The Fly. That's right, the original 1960s The Fly. And uh, had a great career. But uh, yeah, so when you're watching this movie, this is actually a World War I veteran playing a World War I agent. That is kind of cool. Like, you do bring a certain amount of knowledge to something if you've done it before. Definitely. And so the top three for the year. Number one was King Kong, which I noted earlier. Number two was She Done Him Wrong, which was a Mae West uh, Best Picture nominee. It was a comedy. It's actually a really fun movie. And third was 42nd Street, which was a musical that was actually kind of like the big breakthrough, shifting the kind of the direction of where musicals would go. People often look at 42nd Street now as the one that basically is opening up the door for kind of the bigger, splashier musicals that are going to follow in the 40s, 50s, etc. As long as it's not 92nd Street. <laughs> it is not 92nd Street. And while I don't have financials on I Was a Spy... The movie was a box office success in Britain and the U.S., mm -hmm. so it did quite well. And it was voted by Film Weekly magazine as the best British film of 1933, and Madeleine Carroll was voted best performance. Okay, so it had its fans. It did, and that is a magazine that was running in the 20s and 30s. So that is actually not a uh, looking back on 1933. That is a of the time we love this movie. It's always interesting with the sorts of uh, spy hard specials, as I coined the term earlier, for all you tile sorters out there. Uh, you know, this film is highly regarded. It's one of the best of the year, or best British film of the year, according to this magazine. Madeleine Carroll, best performance of the year. Does anyone know this film exists now? No. If you look it up on Letterboxd, the number of reviews, I think, is like 20. Mm. Yeah. That's it. Just it's interesting how we just sort of lose films over time. I mean, this isn't quite a hundred years old, but it's uh, less than ten years away now. Yeah, and it's also with a pretty significant star, Madeline Carroll, mm. who's in you know several Hitchcock things, and you'd think it would have a little more of a reputation out there, but no, not at all. And you know what? Same situation with Lancer Spy when we tackled that one. Like these are two works from this very interesting author. Mm. And yet, I don't know, kind of gone. And actually, it's the case with both films, Lance the Spy and I Was a Spy. They're both on YouTube for free. No one seems to even claim the rights to them. You can just watch them at your leisure. It's not like they're like behind a paywall somewhere. They're just there on YouTube for free. Yeah, it's always like just distribution and yeah. the ownering of rights. Because, you know, King Kong is not bouncing around for free on YouTube, right? Like, the people that own King Kong Universal are like, no, no, we are looking after King Kong, thank you very much. 
Uh, whereas a movie like this kind of slips through the cracks. Yeah. But hey, that's what we're here for. That's right. Yeah. And you know what? It is to a benefit to listeners that this movie is available on YouTube in a totally watchable form. It is not muddy. As we said, the audio is a little bit of an issue at times, but that's more because of the times and not because of a degraded version you're watching on, you know, the streaming site. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes below so you can, if you want to click off now, go watch it come back, go right ahead. That's right. Okay, Cam, are you ready to talk about this film? I am ready. Do you mind if I go first? Please, I love it when you do. Okay. I had an interesting experience with this film. (laughs) (laughs) My original top line note was... Forget I was a spy. More like I was asleep. (laughs) Okay. The first 75 minutes of this film were, especially on my first watch, almost torture. (laughs) Close to torture, right? If it's not for Madeline Carroll, I think I would have actually fallen asleep. But then, almost as if the director himself also woke up, in the last 15 minutes, this film completely comes to life. And... it completely pays off the 90-minute runtime this film has. Uh, the The 15 minutes was so impactful that it actually pulled it away from the whole, like, I was asleep joke. I think it actually is quite a good film. Unfortunately, it does have that 75 minutes. It's more like a docudrama. It takes itself exceedingly serious. Mm-hmm. But then again, this is serious material. It's one thing when I was looking at the second time round, because I didn't know what my expectations were going into it. Because Lance the Spy is a bit more of a frolic, yeah, comparatively. But I wasn't, I wasn't comparing it to that. I just sort of assumed, given the premise, there would be a, a a lightness to this. But it does take itself exceedingly seriously. There's like a bombing sequence that's actually like quite harrowing at yeah. about the sixty-minute mark, and there are like people getting blown apart, thrown all over the place. It's absolutely insane. And so the second time around, I actually took it a bit more seriously and tried to meet it at its its like its own energy, like it, it wanted to be a serious film. I don't think it was very successful at doing that. I think it has too many weird elements to it where it could also have been a bit comical. And the story is a bit like almost like too crazy to be real, in a sense, like she's getting away with these things. But good grief, those last 15 minutes are... I urge you all to check it out just for the last 15 minutes. Never mind the knock list, we'll get to that. But I think those last 15 minutes are worth your time. I actually really enjoyed this one. Uh, This one won me over on the first viewing. I I do agree with you, though. It takes its time to get going. I don't think I'd say 75 minutes, but I would say maybe like the first 15 or so, I was getting a little impatient going like... Like, what is this? This is uh, not the kind of zippy ride I was at least hoping for if it's not going to be, you know, spectacular. But I think what worked for me the most was that, I mean, Madeline Carroll's performance is incredible. Absolutely. I thought in this movie. I loved her in this. And I liked her in The 39 Steps, but I don't know that she leaped out to me in that movie as like, this is a movie star. She's second to Robert Donat in that film. It doesn't show up till like the last like really the last third of the movie or something like that. Like she appears quickly early on, but then Mm -hmm. doesn't get a major showcase till the last third or so. Whereas here, like the camera loves her Mm -hmm. and she just communicated so much emotionally through every bit of this journey that I was just hooked. And what I really liked about this movie was the way it actually conveyed espionage in a way that we don't 
see so often where it's very unglamorous. Sure. It's people just like, you know, smuggling like secrets in like a cigarette mm-hmm. or cabbage, things like that. And the way it showcases the spy craft of, you know, just like, especially in this case, like women who are just in occupied territory. Mm-hmm. It's not grand throw on the like Carmen San Diego outfit and embark on a mission. It is just passing codes or information about what could be nothing. Just, hey, they might empty out a medical ward. That could mean an attack. Can we communicate that to someone? The way they used like um, safety pins on their lapels as a, as a means of communicating that you are a spy to another spy. I found that kind of like very like ground level, down and dirty, sort of like getting by to survive espionage stuff really interesting mm-hmm. i could have like dealt with it even more like because we mentioned canteen ma who pops up here as the vegetable seller interesting character again not someone you think of as a typical spy in these types of movies mm. and i would have loved more of that kind of world where we spent time with characters like that but it is a showcase for madeline carroll and i thought her journey was so effective and i kept like making notes to myself like matahari which we covered really early in this podcast with like Greta Garbo. 12th episode, something like that, really early on. Yeah, and I remember really struggling with that film where it really kind of like took a nosedive into melodrama at mm-hmm. a certain point, and I had a tough time navigating that transition in that movie. Whereas like this movie, I thought, introduced those elements in a way that made sense to me and really felt cohesive beginning to end. And it was because I think I was tracking so specifically the character journey. It didn't feel like it was being disrupted by sweeping violins and love stories. It felt like it was like there is a romantic subplot, but it feels like the kind of romantic subplot that happens during wartime. I I think I had an issue with, because I think we're talking about the love story between Madeline Carroll and and Herbert Marshall, who plays the, uh, he works on the ward basically with her in the hospital. I, I think I sort of, I, I bit back on that one because it just happens so quickly. Sure. Like they are just mad. But they, that that is, and you've said this before, that is just a thing that they did in these days. I mean, they've only got 90 minutes. They need to get to the end. You just got to have a love story. It just is what it is. But that doesn't mean I have to necessarily accept it. And I think some of the choices in this film hinge upon that love story when I'm just like, I don't buy this. And and that's where it seemed a little bit farcical at times. And w- once it's already going a bit wacky, some of the other things can be perceived as a bit wacky as well. Like the Commandant, played by Conrad Veidt, we haven't really mentioned so far, is basically just a megalomaniacal maniac. But you could also view him as quite subdued at the same time. Like mm-hmm. he, he is playing a caricature of a German during World War I. Uh, just even how he, how he like performs and like you know, struts through. It's like he's Tartu, basically. It's uh, I don't want yeah. referencing Tartu, but at the same time, this is all based on real stuff. So maybe it's just sometimes it's like the reality is 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 actually stranger than you know what you think it is. What I liked about the Conrad Veidt character was yes, he is a caricature, but they never play him up as like a one-dimensional evil villain. Like, there is humanity to this character. He clearly is really into um, Marta. Mm -hmm. And you can see that, like, he is very emotionally torn when it's discovered that she has been a spy and working against him. Like, he's not someone who's just a complete, you know, caricature completely. Like, there is something to that character. And maybe that's partly the performance, because if you're going to have a character like this, getting Conrad Veidt is pretty invaluable. 
That's, that's basically the guy in the 30s for that. That's the one you call. Yeah, exactly. And I thought this movie was really interesting to watch in contrast to, like, Notorious, where you have her going away with Conrad Veidt's character to perhaps discover the secret of the um, the Kaiser's visit so they can assassinate him. Mm -hmm. And I thought that stuff was great. And the fact that, like, Stephen is the one who's getting all doe-eyed and being like, he's the one who doesn't want to let her go. Mm. And she's like, I'm sorry, I don't have an option. I got to get this done. And she goes on that mission. And there's a point where she's, like, talking to an ally she has there to pass information to. And she says, well, I'll either find it out now, and then there's kind of a pause, or, or later. And you know what that means. Like, it may be tomorrow morning after, you know, there's been a, some sort of, you know, sexual encounter. And the movie's kind of tiptoeing around her playing that kind of role in terms of her espionage. And obviously, they're trying to communicate to a 1930s audience, which you're not going to be super explicit. But I thought the way that, like, Madeline Carroll navigated that, like, I could feel, like, how much she was struggling emotionally going through it, but at mm. the same time knew she had to do it. And there's a moment where she reunites with Steven after that, when she comes back. And you know that something's happened because she says to, like, um, to the commandant, please don't, please don't, you know, the, the other Belgians will look down on me because of fraternizing with a German. And he's like, too late, too late, sorry. And we know what happened. And she comes back and she just, like, sees Steven. And it is done entirely silently through looks and him putting, like, his hand on hers. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it... It really got me. I was like, this is a really powerful, dramatic moment, and it's so subtle. That's the kind of thing that I liked in this movie was, I guess, the subtleties. But I do think people who are, like, locking themselves in for, like, a 90-minute spy caper may be a little bored. Well, I, I think that was probably the incorrect mindset that I went into the first time around. I, but I, I will, and I do know the, the scene you're talking about, and it is a quite a dramatic moment, and it is quite tender between the two leads. But what didn't really work for me in that preceding scene or like when they went on the little trip to find out about the location of where the kaiser is going to go is it's done in five minutes yeah like i i felt like it needed to there needed to be more hesitation you you mentioned notorious which is always a good film to bring up but you, you think of the hesitations that ingrid bergman is going through before she even meets claude Rains, let alone all the stuff she does just to get in his pocket it takes a while and there's like a build-up of tension she goes back to carrie grant she doesn't want to do it she's like second guessing herself and you feel that sort of internal struggle whereas this it's played out in a, in a couple of minutes she goes from talking to the guy on the balcony about whether i find out now or tomorrow to running out the room saying she can't do this in like 60 seconds and i if i had it my way i would have had 10 minutes yeah that is a bit of the biopic issue sometimes too when you're accumulating all these like stories into a single film and nowadays if they were to make i was a spy in 2024 this movie's like two and a half hours or two hours, 15 minutes or something like for sure. They're spending more time developing it versus 90 minutes or I think it's under that, like 86 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's very much sometimes checking things off because you've got the whole ammo dump story as well that's dealt with in, I don't know, like four minutes, maybe something like that. Yeah, he just turns up, blows it up. OK, like you think like, we'll mention Tartu again. The whole blowing up that base takes 45 minutes, whereas this film, it takes four minutes. I do love when Steven is talking about that, though, uh, that mission. And he says, the biggest dump I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes my outro line. That's great. That's, uh... I just kept thinking of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, ooh, what a shot. 
well, let's talk about things that we liked about it. It sounds like you were a little bit warmer to I was a spy than I was. So why don't you actually lead us off in the likes? Well, I think like one of the just the key to the movie is Madeline Carroll and the way she navigates this because i really bought her as playing very kind of like naive you know young woman in belgium you know her parents are like tavern owners i don't know what her education level would have been like in that era and the way she's kind of brought in is this nurse and she feels naive like it feels like you're watching like a young person mm -hmm. here and that was something we struggled with with little drummer girl where diane keaton was playing someone who was very naive but it didn't really connect at all because she was older and had world experience yeah yeah whereas like here i bought madeline carroll as someone who was very like sheltered and sweet and naive and i also bought her as someone who got more and more experienced and kind of worn down by the whole spy craft world by the end of the film, like when we see her in her prison cell at the end, I felt like I was with someone who'd been on a journey. And I just think Madeline Carroll was just sensational. I don't know a lot about her as a performer. I've obviously seen the Hitchcock stuff, but it made me mm -hmm. want to track down some of her other movies because I don't know that I recognized her as much as a kind of like big star figure um, versus someone who was just kind of like a reliable actor I would see pop up now and again. Well, I, I'm fairly certain her back hurt after filming this because she carries the entire proceeding. She is the linchpin of this film. She gives the only performance I think I'll ever remember mm. from it. Um, I, I'm not. I mean, maybe the Burgermeister might pop back from time to time. That was a pretty uh, interesting performance. But I'll, I'll stick to Madeline Carroll for a second. You know that shot at the very end of the film where the prison door has been opened because the war is over and she like walks out into the light from the darkness mm. it's it's almost like a reverse of the searchers with john wayne walking off at the end when he's like walking out the door back out into the into the wilderness and you hear the bagpipes playing and it, it doesn't say oh you know the british are here the war is over it's like you just hear bagpipes and that means that the scottish are here which means that the british are here which means that they've been saved and that's just it's 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 simple storytelling that doesn't like it doesn't treat the viewer like an idiot but and then like madeline just sort of like kind of slowly walks out she's figuring out what's going on and then it just turns to her face and just like zooms in on her face as this like release happens and she just is happy for the first time in what feels like a long time in the film since maybe the like actually i don't think you ever really see her happy the entire film she starts off destitute yeah with no food to feed the dogs that she's got and then the rest of the film, she's just thrown around by a bunch of Germans. So this is actually maybe the first time in 90 minutes you see her with some sort of a smile. And it's it's that's the shot that will stay with me for years to come. And it's also like she's smiling, but it's almost like a little bit of a melancholy moment, too. Mm -hmm. It's not like a big like parade. They pick her up and carry her down the street cheering. It's like it's a new world and she's wandering out to experience it. But you don't know what it holds for her. And also, you know what? She, well, you know what in this version of the story. Obviously, in real life, there, there was more sacrifice by the sounds of it. But you know what she has sacrificed to be here. Yeah, and obviously, the Stephen story element hangs over that as well, having given up his life for her. Again, mm -hmm. fictionalized, but you do carry that through the character when you're watching the movie. Yeah, uh, you you buy that by the end. She's yeah been beaten down by the whole thing. It, it's quite a melancholic film. It is, yeah. Really. It doesn't, it doesn't really have a happy, happiness moment. Even their relationship sort of, well, war-torn is probably the best word for it. Like They never really get to come together. 
Well, and you know, too, if this was like a American film, like, and it was the Americans coming in, like, they, the way they would portray that final scene would be, there would be much more pomp and circumstance to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, that parade is, like, something that's happening down the street. Yeah. You can see it, but it's not something that she's, like, actively participating in. It's not a big confetti parade kind of thing. It's something that is more like a, basically just a cue that the world you did live in is over. Yeah. Uh, and things could get better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Madeline Carroll is, you know, with a capital M, the best thing in this film. Uh, she's not my MVP, though. Oh, okay. My MVP is Comrade Veidt's eyepiece. <laughs> Have you ever tried to actually put in a monocle? Yes, and I couldn't do it. I haven't got, like, shallow enough or, like, deep enough eyelids, basically. Like, I'm too flat. I can't do it either. Um, Many years ago, um, my sister and I were doing Batman costumes Mm -hmm. for Halloween. We were going out to like this thing they do. um, We have like the Pacific National Exhibition. It's like Playland, kind of amusement park. Uh, We saw Playland actually in in Cats and Dogs 2 or something. Yeah, Cats and Dogs 2. But they do a thing at Halloween called Fright Nights. And we were going there. So I was dressed as Joker and she did Penguin. And so the Penguin, she was doing the Danny DeVito version. And it has the monocle, mm-hmm. and she could do it flawlessly, and I could never do it to save my life at all. No, I, I've tried to. It didn't work. But Conrad Veidt keeps that thing in the entire film, and he changes facial expressions. He talks with it in. This, this man knows his monocles. Yeah. I mean, is that why monocles aren't really a thing anymore? Is because so few people can actually use them? I, I don't know. I don't know if humans' faces have evolved in the last hundred years. <laughs> well, okay. Why are monocles not more common than nowadays? Well, I guess it was a way of saving money back then because you wouldn't have to wear two lenses. You only have to buy one. Whereas yeah, now yeah. lenses are cheaper and it would... I, I think if someone turned up to like a workplace with a monocle on, they'd probably be like, what is this guy's problem? <laughs> HR, HR. <laughs> he keeps staring at me, but with one eye. <laughs> That's when you have to keep walking up and going, I have my eye on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, for likes, I, I did want to sort of talk about something uh, real, not just taking the mickey. Uh, and I've spoken about that last 15 minutes, so I'd, I'll maybe leave that there because that was the moment that brought me back to the film and sort of coloured my second viewing of it and made me sort of appreciate what they were doing a bit more than I did originally. I hope that does for you all too. What I want to talk about is the cinematography. Yeah. I thought was... Rather interesting. It's not tonight we raid Calais levels of this is punching way above your weight. But there are some moments in this film that I really appreciate. There's a moment, for instance, where Madeline Carroll is uh, dropping off a, a, a letter through a, a window. She's dropping off a, a signal or something like that. And it's like a tracking shot done from chest height. But it's almost as if someone's watching her. They've sort of framed it like that. And it just isn't something I've seen in the film from the 1930s or anywhere around this sort of era. It feels like something that you'd see much later on in like the 60s, say with like, you know, Sidney Lumet or something like that. I love that moment too. And you mentioned it earlier when there's the bombing at the uh, gathering, the shot where you see the planes coming in, Mm -hmm. that felt to me so ominous. And it almost gave me vibes of the plane in uh, North by Northwest Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's in the distance and you see that Madeline Carroll is looking at it and seems concerned. And it has that kind of building tension as they're getting closer and closer. And, and you know, knowing what they're actually doing, I mean, they're at 
a church service. Yeah. And they're and they're bombed to smithereens. And now I know, you know, these are the, the Germans in World War One. Um, they were technically our, our enemies at that point. If, if we're saying that we were a part of the Allies, as you and I, but it, I understand why they treat it in that fashion. But it is very dehumanizing at the same time. Like that, they just they shell the hell out of those people. Now I know they're not real people being shelled. There's lots of dummy work, which I think is always fantastic. And oh, yeah. I love seeing dummies blown apart and thrown out of windows and thrown off of like mountains and things like that so great to see but it really comes out of nowhere it does yeah and that scene i thought was really effective and it's really only it's really the only scene of like war violence we see it's the gut punch i mean i would no i think there is a second scene in this film actually there's the moment where like the german um officer goes up and like shoots through a window and kills someone um, okay. I thought that was Third really effective, one, but like in terms of like kind of like large war action sequences, that's the only one. I I well maybe this doesn't count as large for you then, but the the moment that I that jumped out to me was the other one I think was quite not horrific but quite uh, memorable perhaps. Is the moment where you see the gas victims in the hospital and they're all like wheezing and coughing and like dying basically in front of you, and there's a lot of people that are acting it out. And it sometimes makes you wonder if some of those people actually were around that stuff or had had seen friends that had done it because that wasn't that far removed from actual World War One, and it was that was quite horrific. There were like bodies stacked on top of each other, and these were all like real people just coughing and wheezing. They'd been, uh, I think, was it mustard gas they'd made or something like I that? Think chlorine gas. Chlorine gas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that scene though, it's the aftermath. You don't actually see the gassing. Sure. Whereas sure. when it comes to actually staged violence on screen, there's really just that plane sequence is the the only real war violence you see. But yes, there is definitely aftermath stuff. Um, I thought it was interesting, and I was like making notes about this because they're talking about how there's canisters, and they're like, or cylinders. That was the word. They're like mm-hmm. they're cylinders, and they had maps about wind directions. What could this be? And I'm sitting there going, gas, gas, gas. <laughs> and it took them quite a while to be like, wait, a chemist is here? Hold on. Wind direction, cylinders, chemist. What could it be? And it really made me start to think like, um, how much knowledge would they have had during World War I about gas usage? Well, I don't think there would have been that much knowledge until later years of the war because well at some point it had to be discovered and used yeah there had to have been a first strike or a first like campaign of the first few months where it surprised people so i would i would probably place that in that this this in that time period where the you know the german forces were deploying it at this stage and it was surprising people i just wondered because it's like it felt like it was leaving almost like breadcrumbs for the audience to try to figure it out with the characters yeah. And I was like, it was weird to me because it seems so obvious. But then you've got to think like in 1933, this is a lot fresher. Mm-hmm. But we've also had almost 100 years to study this war. And we learned about it in school. These people didn't learn about it in school. Yeah. It happened while they were in school. Like some people might not know or might not have known the effects of the gas or the effects of what it could look like. So showing those bodies, despite it being the after effect, I know what you're saying is still, I think, quite a, a gut punch because you may not have actually thought like, oh, that, this actually will happen to our poor boys out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And 
I think before we move over to dislikes, there was one more thing I really liked, and that was the sort of 90s sitcom style intro sequence introducing the characters. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Whenever it's like video credits, and I couldn't mm -hmm. come up with a term to actually call them because video is not accurate to what they were doing in 1933. But, no. you know, it's like the end of Predator when everyone's like smiling in front of the camera. Uh, this movie, though, really uh, overinflated the importance of the parents where I was watching those mm. credits being like, these parents, they're important. And then you get to the movie and they do almost nothing. No, uh, they don't. But I, in my head, I sort of scored it to the theme tune of Friends. Oh, okay, okay. You need to make that YouTube clip. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can put that together. The film's online, so why not do it, try and make that? Um, and I, I did have one uh, final little like to add, actually, a, a less comical one, more of a serious one. And that is, it has strong female characters. Madeline Carroll, but you know, the whole Madeline Carroll story is set off by her cousin or auntie or something, I can't remember the exact relationship, who is also a spy mm -hmm. and sort of like hands the baton over to her. Plus, you've got like the mother character. There is a lot of strong female characters in this film, and I love to see it. Yeah, and Canteen Ma, don't forget Canteen Ma. And yeah, Lucille um, was, I think they called her aunt. In real life, it was a family friend. So I don't know if it was an honorary aunt kind of thing in this sure. movie. It was a little mm -hmm. vague. For sure. But no, like that's something I really enjoyed about the movie as well is that like it told the types of female driven spy stories that aren't commonly told and made me just wonder why we don't get more things like this now. No, you're right, Cam. Less the three five fives and more I was a spy, please. <laughs> that's always my motto. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Red alert, spy hards. We are shaking things up over on the Patreon page. That's right, we are launching an exclusive new show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents like Jack Bauer, George Smiley, and beyond. And don't forget, every month you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy movies. But Cam, tell the people what we have coming up next. Scott, we are going to be looking at a real disaster movie that is because we are going to tackle the 1974 star-studded disaster epic the towering inferno let's find out if this one still packs some sparks so don't get left out in the cold help support your favorite spy movie podcast and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards but before this message self-destructs let's get back to the spy jinx Okay, then let's talk about dislikes. Now, uh, I think I was the one that's a bit more sour on I Was a Spy, so maybe I should lead us off. Sure, go for it. I think we've sort of discussed my dislike of the first part of this film. You said it was more 15 minutes, I said it was more 75, which is probably why I dislike a lot of this film because I, I found it a bit sort of slow when I was expecting it to be faster, and I, I found it, it should have been maybe a bit more funny or I should have bought the relationships. It turned into me more of a docudrama, mm -hmm. which isn't a problem. But when you've got people acting out things, now this is I you know find out from you it's based on real stories, which is is, is interesting, of course. But it, it it feels like it's a fictionalized story in how it's presented, and it it just plays like you're watching people instead of watching actors, right? Uh, and that that sort did of, sort of rub me up the wrong way. But what I did want to sort of focus on is the sort of Herbert Marshall love story. Mm -hmm. as you said earlier as i pointed out these things have to go fast because of the runtime because it's the 30s i totally get it 
but I, I didn't for at one point buy any sort of a spark between the two of them. They start off as like, you know, he's an antagonist almost. He's, he's deemed as in her way. And then, you know, he's meant to be breaking down her walls and he becomes like her spy contact, basically. But they really just sort of jump on that I love you very quickly and then just move on to them being... And, and eventually he sort of sacrifices himself for her. I kind of wish we'd had, the, you know, maybe dispensed with the whole, like, he is an antagonist and had the relationship being developed from the start. Maybe I would have bought it a bit more. I also just think that, like, it would have worked stronger for me because I don't think the romance is particularly strong in this movie either. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have worked better if it was, like, more of, like, a quiet affection. And I mentioned that scene earlier where she comes back after spending the, you know, the weekend or whatever with the, with the uh, commandant. And it's just, like, you know, touching of a hand and a look. If they'd ground the relationship in that sort of gestures, I think like that would have really worked where it was like a human tenderness, but it's also they are spies in the middle of war. Mm-hmm. And it's like sweeping romance is not in the cards. And I think it would have worked better if it was more just like he was willing to make the sacrifice because of a connection they felt with each other that maybe wasn't as acted upon as even here. I mean, it's not exactly a sweeping romance movie, but it goes a little bit further than it's probably necessary in terms of the melodrama. Yeah, I I, I just wish that they had just taken a bit more time. And I think if you did get your way and had a two hour and 30 minute version of this, you would have had more time to develop their relationship and you would then have cared more that he sacrificed himself at the end. I didn't really care that much mm, yeah. uh and and so the dramatic payoff wasn't there for me as much i'm not going to blame that on on herbert marshall i don't know him as an actor other than this i think so i don't know what he's like or what he's capable of but it just didn't work for me well uh, he's good in the movie he has that kind of like weathered kind of look to him that like you buy him as someone who has been sort of in the field for a long time um and has definitely had experiences but in terms of a character, I think he's the one they kind of know what to do with the least. I think the Commandant, they got a real clear handle on. And obviously, Madeline Carroll's character is the star of the show. With uh, Herbert Marshall's Stephen character, um, I don't know that they quite 100% understand that character. In the way that when you're doing a notorious film, Cary Grant's character is very vivid. Yeah, absolutely. Or you know, you talk about Matahari, the 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 man she falls in love with, ultimately has to watch her die. Yeah, and you care more about that relationship, I would say, than you do about the relationship in this film. Well, it also feels like Stephen is set up to die, mm-hmm. right? Like when he makes that decision at the end. I mean, what else does this guy have to live for? <laughs> we know nothing about him, really. No, I don't even know necessarily who he's working for, or. We know he's working for the British, he is a spy, but, you know, nothing about his sort of constitution, why he cares is, I I don't remember if he was actually from Belgium or he was a German. I think, I think he was Belgian, I think, I think. I see, I remember them sort of saying he's a German. Oh, wait. And that's why, and that's why she was like, oh. He was, that's why he was in the uniform and everything. Yeah. So then yeah. like, there's something interesting there, like a German betraying his own country. The fatherland. Like, why is he doing this? Dig into that a little bit. Well, tell us something about him. What was he like before the war? Why did he betray his country? Did he see something he didn't like or, or something? Yeah. Uh, you know, does he have any family? Does he have anything? Like, we have no sense of his inner life whatsoever, whereas we know about hers. Um, the Commandant, 
I don't know that you need that much insight. You understand professionally as to who he is and what he wants. Like mechanically, his function in the town is this, and that's what he does. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't need to know that much more. Um, but with Herbert Marshall, it just feels like he's the thinnest of the three. Well, okay. What about you, Cam? I dislike. Um, I think for me, it is like the build up to the movie. I think it's a little clunky in the setup. And mm-hmm. for me, it was like more of the 15 minutes. But like, it, it also felt like things weren't being explained particularly well. Like the fact we really didn't know who the aunt was, Aunt Lucille. Mm. Um, it just felt like in terms of kind of setting things up, it was clunky. And also we've tackled like a number of movies from the 30s now. And some feel creaky and some don't. Some movies will just feel like, holy smokes, like this is just zipping along. Mm-hmm. 39 Steps, for example. Sure. This one felt a little creakier in the construction than some of the other movies of the 30s. This is kind of more, a little more of the movie that people probably think of when they think about watching a movie from the 1930s. This is what I thought of when we started doing this. This is, this is what I... and like. Matahari was sort of like this as well in in a lot of ways. I mean, it had mm-hmm. like the lavish production and the costuming, I think, really stood out with Matahari. But I think in terms of like the melodrama, in terms of its sort of racing to the finish line attitude, and just sort of a bit, not shoddy is probably not the right word for it. It's not a shoddy production. They actually threw a lot of money at this. Well, I think they wanted to anyway. But just, I don't know, creaky is the word I'm looking for. It feels creaky. Yeah, it's... Kind of a case where it feels almost like stagey as well. Like there are very cinematic moments that we talked about, like the the planes coming in and things like that. Yeah. But it often feels kind of like almost like stage bound at times. And sometimes it doesn't have that kind of like uh, that immersive feel you get with some other movies of the 1930s where it's like you are sucked into that world and you are off and running. This one feels like it's kind of lurching a little bit in that first section for me where I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel as inviting and welcoming as some other 1930s films. This feels like Mm. one that is a little more work to invest in, but it does get there. I think once you lock into the Madeline Carroll character arc, you're good to go, but it takes a while. I think, I think for me, it takes a little bit longer just because it it takes a while to have any sort of real stakes for her and in in what she's doing she's generally just getting away with it for a very long period of time until like her contact is shot Mm. and it falls through on the trip and then she gets arrested because she picks up the watch like all the house of cards she's built starts to crumble yeah you know that's when it gets interesting for me because like oh okay she's actually in peril now whereas uh, like for me i said 75 minutes it's probably me being facetious it's probably more like 60 minutes but for those 60 minutes she's basically just got plot armor on i think i was more uh on board once she began to enter the world of espionage where it was more like the tricks of the trade being shown to her Mm -hmm. and that stuff's more after 15 minutes uh and that that to me was where the movie suddenly went okay this is interesting the way we see that they pass secrets around things like that and we feel like we are getting kind of a guided tour of world war (laughs) one belgian espionage tactics i was like oh sure oh that's kind of interesting oh i wouldn't have thought of that and the way it was all very unflashy yeah um I thought that was actually where the movie clicked. Well, it feels very specific. Like the people involved, and obviously it turns out, you know, the person it's focused on was a spy doing this in this country at this time. She knew what she was doing and talking about. It it feels like a lived experience and there's a lot of specific bits of trade craft that you'd only really know if you were there doing it. Yeah, like they clearly took very strong parts from the book Mm -hmm. that were based on her life. And they obviously injected 
some melodrama along the way, but when it came to the specifics, I thought that was on point. And it's not something, huh? I feel like when you and I have tackled spy movies from the 1930s and maybe even 40s, you don't get as specific a details as this movie has. No, it it probably just feels more like sort of general spycraft, as it were, as people perceive spycraft. Well, this is, of course, from the memoirs of a, a real spy. A lot of it is like they go undercover and they just need to like not get caught. So they're like, you know, observing things or taking notes. But I don't, I don't feel like you see as much tradecraft in older spy films as you do in this movie. I think The 39 Steps has a little bit. Like the, the man without the fingers and stuff like that. There's, there's, there's particular things going on there. But then like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember what John Buchan's history is with spycraft. If he was one, I can't remember. So maybe that's coming from him. It could also just be like Alfred Hitchcock had such an attention to detail mm. that that sort of thing would bother him not to have. Sure, yeah. Versus like other filmmakers who would be a little more like, I'm making a 1930s spy caper. Let's go. The other thing I wanted to bring up in the dislike section just briefly before we go to final notes was it's there is a small bit of music to start the film. Yeah. But I think there are moments in this film that would have benefited from some sort of score. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny because like uh, sometimes we'll debate back and forth about scores and you'll say like, I didn't even notice a score. Mm. And this movie, was there music? I have no memory of it. There, there basically wasn't. There's some at the beginning to sort of introduce because usually you have there's like a there's a darkness at the start of the film for like ten seconds, which is usually I think when the curtains open, that's yeah. what that's for. And there's music like trumpets playing and stuff. And then when the film starts and you sort of uh, get the Friends title sequence, uh, it, that's it. There is no more music. So maybe that actually works though, in a sense, because the next time you hear music is when it's the uh, the Scottish showing up. Yeah, mm. yeah. Maybe that is a choice. I'd be interested. I, I don't know. I don't know the era very well to be like. Have they? Is scores a normal thing? Would you expect a score at this point? Not to the degree you would have scores now, but they would usually have some sort of music. They would be working in. Yeah. I. Yeah. I mean, I. I'd be interested to hear from you all because uh, you know we always put our hands up if we don't know enough about something. And if you know a little bit more about what should be going on, if this is the norm for 1933, or if this was more of a choice from the director, it'd be interesting to find that out. I mean, there were movies with scores, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't kind of like wall-to-wall music the way movies are nowadays. Mm. Um, so, and often you'd have characters perform music on screen. You know, they like they play the piano, or or if it's a Marx Brothers movie, they're gonna play the harp or something like that. Sure. Um, but it's like I don't know if that was intentional on the part of this movie, but it is interesting if it is only music at the start and then nothing, and then you don't hear music again until the the Scottish show up. That's actually, I think interesting in terms of the construction of the movie but i don't know that it landed on me that way when i was watching the movie that's more in retrospect i wonder if that was intentional then if that is the case because i for me it stood out to me all the way through there was no music yeah a lack of sound there was even moments of just silence and so i know the music at the start and obviously we mentioned the bagpipe bagpipes at the end so maybe it was a sort of showing her that life has begun again yeah and they also used library music a lot in the in those days as well. Like you'd have some scores that would just pop up over and over again in movies. Mm-hmm. So they could have probably used catalog stuff as well. But yeah, I wonder if that was intentional. Well, let us know what you think, folks, on that one. But let's just throw it over to final notes. Cam, what do you have? Um, I had a couple final things. I thought it was interesting that you had that opening text quoting Winston Churchill. That mm-hmm. was very much a like, respect your spies. 
They're out there doing the good work. Scott, when do we ever hear that in any other movie? When do we get our respect, Cam? Well, well, we're like Roddy Dangerfield. We get no respect. Get none. Um, that's part of our shtick. But uh, no, I thought that was actually interesting because you so rarely hear people talk about like the bravery of spies. It's more mm. like, oh, they're, they're schemers out there. They're doing things. It, well, it's uh, it's obviously a choice. I imagine that's more to do with uh, probably keeping Notcart happy because it's her story. Yeah. Being, being pro-spy, as we are. That's right. And I also actually really like the moment at the end of the movie when she was in the courtroom and declared herself an agent of Belgium. Mm. I thought that was really good because it's like, are you with us? Are you with the allies? And she's like, I'm an agent of Belgium. And you're like, hell yes. Fireworks, fist bump, applause. Well, that's where like the Burgermaster sort of comes out as well as quite cool because he's like, well, this is like the 21st time I've declared myself an agent of Belgium or whatever it is he says, and I'll keep doing it. Because he's yeah, yeah. he's like a locked in guy. I, I imagine he was like the mayor of the town before the Germans came along and they just kept him as sort of a figurehead. Yeah. And the Burgermaster was played by Edmund Gwen, who played Santa Claus in the original Miracle on 34th Street. And according to Wikipedia, so I didn't cite this in the behind the scenes, but they cite mm -hmm. him as being a co-writer on this film. I could not find that backed up anywhere else. And the link that Wikipedia gave led to a... Um, a website that was not in English that I translated, and there was no mention of his name anywhere on the page. So I don't know why Wikipedia is reporting this, but Edmund Gwen, if you did have some sort of writing work on this film... If you're well, listening. Yeah, <laughs> from the great beyond, uh, let us know and we will give you proper credit. <laughs> quite, uh, quite a burger mystery. Mm, mm -hmm. mm. This is what you turn up for every week, folks. Uh, two notes I had. Firstly... And this is something I've I've noted before in other uh, spy media, but the you, you did credit them for the safety pins. Yeah, I find it a bit crazy that they would have something so overt. Sure. Whilst trying to be covert, because it's like it's like the old Section Thirty One wearing the black badges nonsense. Right. Yeah. Um. I I don't know. I, I feel like if it's a known code for spies and you're wearing them, I, surely everyone's gonna be like, oh, that's, that's that's you're a spy. No, I'm not. Why are you wearing two safety pins slanted sideways? Uh, fashion? Like, you're just walking into a trap, right? Is it a known code, though? Uh, Steven knows it because he is a spy. Someone's going to give it up at some point, surely. Someone's always going to ruin it. And That's true. It won't disseminate to the whole core of spies, and so someone will get found out. Yeah. Maybe it was early in the... Uh... Early in the war, they came up with that, and then they shifted at a certain point. And the movies didn't cover the transition from safety pins to something else. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for all of... Uh, what, what, what do we call people? Tile what? Sorters? Tile sorters. All you tile sorters. Stick on two pins, and we'll know you're in, in public. That's right. I'll be wearing one from now on. <laughs> yeah, just make sure it's uh, matched by color. And the last note I had was uh, Comrade Veidt, bless his heart. He's mm -hmm. very much typecast in this, uh, I'd say, around this point in his career. He does do other things, and you've mentioned some films he's done otherwise that are quite fantastic. But, you know, he's often playing German people from World War One. It's happened in a few films we've looked at so far. So um, I want to ask you, Cam, what do you think you would be typecast as? Oh, that... God. Um, someone who sorts tiles by color and size? <laughs> um, That's cheating. That's yeah, cheating. Uh, what would I be typecast as? I don't... Do you have an answer to this? I don't know that I have one. I have a feeling I would be that uh, I'd be uh, Paul Giamatti's understudy. Paul Giamatti's understudy. <laughs> well, I I had a, it's like a, a very neurotic guy, 
Um, or because I'm bald uh, and you know I'm five foot eight, maybe I would be like the the creepy dude. Okay, like I feel like um, that uh, Conrad Veidt knew his sort of knew his lane. He knew mm-hmm. what sold. I don't know that I know what sells. With I mean, <laughs> movie nerd. <laughs> So you're going off of like at- personal attributes you have, not physical attributes you have. Yeah, I don't know that I would be able to determine what I would be best typecast as. Mm. Okay, well, sh- should we do each other? I don't know that I'm good at this. No, I'm not okay. a casting agent and I struggle with this sort of thing. Okay. It's like when people ask me who would you cast in a role, it's like, oh God, I hate that question. I used to say Zach Braff for myself for a very long time until I stopped liking Zach Braff. And he sent you a cease and desist letter. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it was it was it was mostly for Florence Pugh, but uh, he just happened to be there every time. Sure, sure. Mm. I I don't know. I I, I think um, just based on what I'm like, I'm quite a uh, not a hypochondriac, but like I do like to remain clean and away from bugs. Mm. Uh, and I suppose you know, uh, yeah. I know I'm I'm quite nerdy and I'm quite a talker. So maybe I'm one of those like over-explaining nerds that gets really nervous and like just keeps blabbering until they get shot. I'm definitely not getting cast as like calm, cool guy. That's for sure. No, no. I, I'm I, okay. Well, okay. Let, hang on then. Let's look at like uh, spy movie tropes, right? I'm 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 the guy in the van, right? I'm Benji. Yeah. Like I feel like they might cast me as like tech guy, but I'm so not a tech guy. No. Well, neither of us are particularly techie, but I think in terms of like spy tropes, neither of us are James Bond. Nope. We're much closer to like Nigel Smallfawcett than anything else. <laughs> I think you may have nailed it there. We are getting pushed into jacuzzis at the end of a movie. <laughs> Mr. Bond, no! <laughs> well, uh, it's time to talk about the knock list now that me and Cam have been pushed into the jacuzzi. I was a spy. Is it making the knock list? Cam, what do you think? Uh, it's a no for me. Um, it's a movie I enjoyed, but it sometimes falls into that line of like really enjoying something versus thinking it is a all-timer movie that needs to be recognized on the Pantheon. It's not quite the Wrecking Crew. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Leave it alone. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um like, I don't think that this is kind of like an iconic movie of the 1930s. Like, I felt really good putting um the 39 steps yeah. on the knock list. I think that movie deserves it. I don't know that this one has those sorts of legs, um, but I do think it's an interesting and solid spy film. People should check out who are into the history of spy films. So that's one note from you. Uh, let's see how I do. I'm inclined to agree. It's a, well, it's obviously it's a no from me just because I was less hot on the film than you were. I think this is an interesting bit of cinema history for those who really like your spy movies. Uh, and want to see something different from Madeline Carroll, maybe, and see what yeah. she can do with a lead role, uh, and see a, a true story brought to life in a in a, a different era, um, and mostly true and played straight. And there are some pretty horrific moments in here, and there is some quite wonderful filmmaking at times. But unfortunately, unlike something like the Thirty Nine Steps, that is pretty much perfect the entire way through. This has its moments. This one doesn't hit that next level. Yeah. Like, it's a consistently good, interesting movie, at least the way, you know, I, I saw it. Um, And it never quite 
achieves greatness. Like when I turned it off, I was not like, I've discovered a masterpiece. I didn't feel the way I did, say, for example, when I finished The Five Fingers, yeah. where I was just blown away by what I'd watched. Mm. It was a movie I enjoyed watching. And kind of like Tonight We Raid Calais, a movie we've talked about as well on this show a number of times. Yeah. I will carry fond memories of this movie, but it's not one that's a all-timer for me. So there you go, folks. Two no's. I Was a Spy is not making the knock list dossier on the film. It's complete and filed as classified. Cam, the question goes to you. As always, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we have a very exciting interview that is going to be dropping. We are going to talk to Jeff Kleeman, who is the executive vice president of production at MGM United Artists in the 1990s and played a pivotal role in helping launch the Brosnan Bond era. There are so many secrets about Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, and The World Is Not Enough. We are going to delve into a lot of stuff that, to the best of my knowledge, has not actually been divulged before. This is a big one and going to be a big, big, exciting event for Bond fans. Absolutely. I mean, this guy, they say uh, in the decision-making room around about this time was Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, but Jeff was the other person in the room representing MGM United Artists, and he was part of the decision-making process that, you know, moving on from Timothy Dalton and picking Brosnan and moving on with those three films. He has some fantastic stories, and obviously it doesn't have like the name recognition of some other things, but trust me, if you're a James Bond fan, especially of the 90s era, you're going to want to hear more about this. Plus, plus, he also has a story credit on 2015's The Man from Uncle. He was part of the team that brought that back to the big screens, and you know me and Cam quite like that film too, and a lot of you do as well. It's well worth listening to. You will love it. Yeah, totally. This is a big one, folks. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we sit down with the man, Jeff Kleeman. And he tells us everything about the 1990s Brosnan era and much, much more. If you like what you heard on this episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This is the only cheap plug of the episode. Patreon.com slash spyhards. Tons of different options and how you can support the show and tons of bonus episodes. It's all going to pay the bills basically here at Spy Hards HQ and keep the lights on. Uh, if you don't already, make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at Spy Hards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next time, folks, you'll find Cam and I sorting tiles by colour and size. Mm-hmm.